Hello, friends. My name is Jess Piper, and this is The Dirt Road Democrat. On this episode, I'll be talking to David Pepper, the author of the book, Laboratories of Autocracy. This show is brought to you by the Heartland Pod and our Patreon supporters. To learn more and join us, go to heartlandpod.com and click the Patreon link to get signed up to support this show and the others in the Heartland Pod family to get bonus content and special access for events. Follow me on social media. On Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, I'm Piper from Missouri. On TikTok, you can find me at Jess Piper Mo. And be sure to follow the Heartland Pod on all accounts. Well, hello, friends, and thank you for joining me for another episode of The Dirt Road Democrat. And I have a treat for you today. I am introducing you to someone you may already know. His name is David Pepper. Uh, He's a lawyer, a writer. He's an activist. He was an elected official. He's a professor, and he served as chairman of the Ohio Democratic Party between 2015 and 2021. In that role, he was engaged in so many fights and extensive litigation over voter suppression in Ohio. And I reached out to him because I watch his whiteboards. I watch him on Twitter. And if you don't follow him, you should. Um, I think it's at David Pepper. Um, But he talks about the same thing that we are dealing with here in Missouri, the same laws that we see, the same GOP lawmakers who are hell-bent to come after education and roads and our hospitals and our wages and trans kids and everything you can imagine. And they have this GOP supermajority over there as well. And David also talks about the same thing that I do all the time. The only way that we keep from chasing our tails, the only way we do better is making sure that we have someone running on every single ticket, on every single ballot, in every single race across the state. And uh, now I'm just going to send you over to listen to the interview. It is fantastic. Um, You might need a pen and paper at this point because he has so much info um, that all of us uh, could use. And now that here's the interview. Support this show and all of the work in the Heartland Pod universe by going to heartlandpod.com and clicking the Patreon link to sign up. Membership starts at $1 per month and goes up from there with extra shows and special access at the higher levels heartlandpod.com, click the Patreon link, or just go to Patreon and search for The Heartland Pod. No matter the level you choose, your membership helps us create these independent shows as we work together to change the conversation. And now, back to the show. Well, hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us for another episode of The Dirt Road Democrat. And I am so excited uh, for my guest today. His name is David Pepper, and you've already heard about him in the intro. So let's get started. How are you today, David? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, I invited David on because uh, he really, you have a a book about this. What is your book called again, David? Uh, Laboratories of Autocracy. And it is fantastic, you guys, and you know I'm picky about what I read, but um, it really makes sense for those of us living in red states, you know, trying to find out what's happening. And I started following David on Twitter, and I realized he's in Ohio, and he's tweeting about the same exact things that we're struggling with in Missouri. And then I look around, and I have people in Ohio going, same thing's happening here, Texas, Tennessee, uh, Nebraska. So, David, can you tell us 
um, really what you're focusing on and what's happening in these states that have, you know, GOP supermajorities. Yeah, I, and thank you. Yeah, when I see you talk about and tweet about Missouri, it's so common to our experience here. In some cases, you're ahead of us in the downward spiral. Other areas, we're ahead of you. And the reason I wrote this book called Laboratories of Autocracy is I just saw, you know, in middle of 21 that the same pattern everywhere and no one, for the most part, really seeing it. And that is, you know, an attack on democracy, which I think people are starting to see, but they don't really, we're not, we're not being disciplined enough to see what their battle is. And they have figured out that to put in, to lock in a minority world viewpoint into American politics and American governance, they basically figured out it's very difficult to do through Congress. There's too much attention, et cetera, et cetera. They have figured out that the place to do it are broken state houses. That state houses in the wrong hands have all, can, can create a set of incentives that reward extremism, and that reward giving away public goods to the private sector, as long as it's gerrymandered, as long as it's not transparent, and most of them aren't because the media really doesn't cover them. We all love to watch Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Bob. We don't love to watch it, but that's what people, that's what they click, that's what they view, that's what 60 Minutes does interviews with. And in the meantime, back in state houses, they can do all this damage where no one's paying attention. And I wrote this book to try and explain, well, let me explain in Ohio how it works. But I did it knowing that it works this way in many states like Missouri. But the thing about my book that's that's kind of scary is the far right didn't need to read it because they know all this already. And they, years ago, through groups that you and I know about and other your listeners know about called ALEC mm -hmm. and other far right groups, they figured out years ago, my God, state houses are the place to go to get a far right wing unpopular agenda accomplished because in state houses, you can lock them down through gerrymandering. You can suppress the vote of the opposition. You're pretty much not going to be covered by the media. And Democrats don't really focus there. They focus on Washington. So if you had one place to do all this damage in this extreme worldview agenda, you do it through state houses. And, that's, and so it's not, it's not an accident that's happened in all these places. It's coordinated. They literally, when I call my book Laboratories of Autocracy, it's not an exaggeration. It's not clickbait. It's how they operate. And so, of course, when a law passes in Florida, it comes to Missouri, comes to Ohio. When they make a mistake, they learn from it and correct for it before they move forward another state. So they're acting in concert. And if that's why it feels like everything kind of looks, it feels the same. And if it feels like things are accelerating, it's because they are. If you have 30 different laboratories to push the same things, it's going to speed up because every time you do it somewhere, you do it somewhere else, et cetera, et cetera. And so what you're going through with, with um, these giveaways of public education money to, to big donors who want to make money out of schools, that's we've been going through that for a decade. Uh, Florida's been going through that. I mean, it's the same playbook. They've nationalized the, this weakness, the Achilles heel of our state houses. They've nationalized it and they've weaponized it. And so you look up and all of a sudden they don't do that much in Washington. They just make noise where they do the work is in state houses. Can you explain uh, for readers, because I we hear the word all the time and I'm not sure everyone understands it. What is gerrymandering um, and how does that work in a state house? 
So what they've done with your most states, the state house, not all, some have reformed, mainly Democratic states, of course. But most states, the people who draw the lines of the districts that basically determine whether or not you have a real democracy in a state are the state houses themselves, or maybe some some kind of, you know, or they're involved to some degree, if not completely uh, in charge. It varies. But for the most part, state house and state house leaders are playing the leading role. And so with the power to draw the district lines comes the power to, in the right hands, draw lines that lead to transparency, competitiveness, accountability, and representational government. That your broader state house represents the broader views of the people of that state. In the wrong hands, what you get, and you have it in Missouri, we're stuck with in Ohio, is total locked up government. Not just minority rule, but not just sort of no competition broadly. And Wisconsin's the best example of this, where the, literally the voters of Wisconsin voted for a Democrat for their state house by nine points in 2018, yet still a two to one supermajority Republican in that state house. So it warps representation, but more damaging than all of that, I've become convinced, is they've drawn it so almost not a single member of any of these state houses in the majority ever faces a reelection their entire careers. Mm -hmm. And the damage that that does is so much bigger than even that lack of, you know, than, than, than being in charge when they haven't earned it. It means that all the incentives of legislating that you and I assume people are following, you know, public service, public outcomes that improve, sort of mainstream because you couldn't do things that were unpopular or you'd lose. In a world that they've gerrymandered, where not a single person feels the accountability of a future election ever, the incentives turn upside down. All of a sudden, public outcomes cratering, like schools failing, doesn't affect them. They get reelected no matter what. But helping that for-profit company make money out of those school dollars, they get ahead in that because those people are big players at the state house. They also have now an incentive to be extremists, while in a normal system of comp competitive districts, you have more of an incentive to be more mainstream. So once they've gerrymandered and rigged these systems, which they have done, all the incentives of these state houses get screwed up. They get they go upside down of what we assume. They spend most of their time giving away public goods to private players. It's like Brett Favre giving away TANF funds meant for people with little means to volleyball courts. That's sort of a symbol of it. And so and it get, and that's why in states like Missouri and Ohio, as they all stay in office, we see our public outcomes going down further and further. They're not even trying to serve those outcomes. That's not part of their incentive structure. So gerrymandering is a, a big power of a democracy. And once they've created a system of no accountability, there's this downward spiral and extremism, poor public outcomes. And of course, to keep it all going, they have to continue to attack democracy because if they were ever to face a real election, having delivered extremism and terrible public outcomes against a decent candidate, they know they would lose. So they have to keep gerrymandering and keep suppressing the vote. So it seems technical, but it essentially they have the power to construct the democracy of their state. And once they've constructed it in these rigged ways, the all there's so many other implications for everyday people in these in our states. 
So you talked earlier about, you mentioned schools, and I know that Ohio passed a voucher scheme or uh, we're trying to privatize schools and you guys have been doing it for a while. It's just now starting in Missouri. Um, we have, you know, a voucher scheme that has gone through. I read an article yesterday, you were talking about Brett Favre and what he did with TANF funds. I read an article yesterday uh, from Missouri that was talking about we have elected a state representative and he is on the um, education committee and he also works for a corporation um, where he is the scholarship provider to this, um, you know, this Christian school corporation. And so he's able to, through the state house, create scholarships and direct money towards these scholarships to the place that he's actually working. Um, and to me, I'm just like, guys, it's out in the open. It's, it's a, a, seems like a conflict of interest. It seems problematic and there's so much reporting and nobody does anything about it. David, do you see that? Do you see outright corruption? And then it just keeps chugging along. Yeah. I mean, I'm as much concerned about citizens United as anybody. But the problem here is not just dark money, although it makes it worse. It is out in the open. You can go look at that guy's financial disclosures and see, as you just described, in the open, publicly reported, he makes a salary from a place that will benefit from his legislation. This, is, this has been true in Ohio for years. So Citizens United makes it worse, but the corruption in these places is out in the open. Once there's no sense of accountability, the corruption explodes. We just had, now fortunately, the federal government in Ohio just busted the Speaker of the House for open corruption, and he is going to go to jail. But for the most part, it is out in the open. And to be very clear, and I, I watched your struggle there in, in Missouri, the, 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 the quote-unquote school choice in Ohio, it started with for-profit schools that turned into massive scams. They would get money every time a kid would leave a public school, and that they would claim that they were taking classes on computers at home, it turns out they weren't even keeping attendance, but they were claiming money for attendance. It's, this is all about money. The, 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 they dress everything up as being about other things like parents' rights and school choice. That's all marketing for someone making a lot of money using our public school dollars as piggy banks. And then enough of that money flows to the politicians that they do it for them. They're being paid, the politicians, to crater our public schools. Mm -hmm. So it's some of it for some maybe about ideology. But when you see it happening in a big way, I guarantee you somewhere is money. Mm -hmm. And these school funds and you know people in our across our state, rural and urban pay money into our schools. That's one thing that most people agree on. Public schools for our kids. Well, some for-profit, you know, moneymakers see that money as an opportunity to make money. And for the most part, when you track it all back, when you see something moving at this scale, it's because someone's making money out of it. And here's the bottom line. And this is what I don't want you to go through. I don't know where, where you are at this point. And it, it never stops. They just keep going and going. Even when you have FBI's investigating these for-profit scams, our schools in Ohio will rank fifth in the nation 12 years ago. Now we're ranked mid-20s. My God. And it's, it, it coincides precisely when they started forking all the money over, you know, claiming that our public schools were terrible. They were fifth in the nation, and now they're in their mid-20s. And the money goes into 
for-profit charter schools whose performances have not all, but mostly been far worse than even the most struggling public schools in Ohio. It's about money. And the reason they keep doing it is again, if you, if you thought to yourself, my goal is to improve public schools, the minute you saw that your experiment took schools from 5th to 26, you'd stop, wouldn't you? Right. But that's not their goal. Their goal is to fork over money to these private players who give them money. They are operating on a different incentive system. Because once you can't lose at home in your district, taking money from your local school district and giving to that for-profit player, that actually gets you ahead in the screwed up world they live in. In a normal world of politics, that's that suffering school district back home, you know, the local team everyone cheers for. You'd be out of office. Mm-hmm. You'd be gone. But in their screwed up world, those public outcomes falling doesn't affect you. But that for-profit charter school company that makes all that money, they're helping you. And so, yeah, it's been a disaster. And it doesn't end. Again, they don't, the fact that the results are terrible, the, the results that we're looking at, public outcomes, the fact that those are terrible do not slow them down because that's not what they're trying to improve anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think the sooner people see that, I mean, th- again, this sounds crazy to say i wouldn't have said this even 10 years ago until i started looking around statewide i was a local council member a county commissioner the mo of these broken corrupt state houses is very simple it's how to take as many public goods as possible whether it's tax dollars regulations that serve the public and to use those goods to support private players that is the consistent theme whether it's education or rail safety, or energy bailouts, or privatization. It's always people in, quote, public service, but they're not serving the public. You, they use the, their, the control they have over public goods to enrich private entities, who then give them back a big chunk of the private benefit through campaign support so they can keep doing it. And, and, and so whether it's schools or energy grids in Texas free uh, collapsing so people freeze to death or the fact that we have far more train accidents because states don't actually do anything to protect their rails, it's all the same theme. Public goods handed to the private sector, the public pays the price, the private gains, and use some of the gains to feed the politicians to keep doing it all. So we understand, and I'm sure most of my listeners do too, why they're trying to privatize schools. Because just like you said, I mean, it's it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money coming in. These people are being financed. But tell me why, because there is no money in harming a transgender child. There is no money in attacking, um, you know, gender affirming care. But in all of our states, we see the same bills coming forth to target four or five kids uh, in each state. What has that got to do? Is it just a culture war? And I hate to use that word because it it harms real people. It's not a culture right. war when it harms people. But why trans kids? That's about winning elections for them. They here's so they they the the policy of the privatization. That's big money. Mm-hmm. That's being driven by money more than anything else. Um, but here's their problem. And they have a problem and they know it. And we saw it Wisconsin the other day. We saw it in Kansas last August. Most of what they want is deeply unpopular. Mm-hmm. They know that. I mean, Missouri is a pro-choice state. I guarantee a poll would show that. Yeah. Only a few states aren't at 50%. Missouri isn't one of them. 
gun reform, common sense gun reform is vastly widely popular. It's I'm sure popular in Tennessee, not every single type of reform, but for the most part, universal background checks and other things, child safety, these are very popular. Everything Joe Biden talked about in the State of the Union a few weeks ago would poll in the 60s, in Tennessee, in Missouri, maybe in the 50s. Um, they know that their worldview is deeply unpopular. They know that if they had a straight up election on their issues, look at Wisconsin, look at look at Pennsylvania where Fetterman focused on abortion bans, look at, again, the Kansas referendum. They know that they would lose. So they want to avoid as much as they can a vote on their actual agenda. So they're always looking for ways to get onto hot topics away from their agenda, banning books, crime all of a sudden that shows up with weeks ago an election disappears the day after a caravan heading north from Mexico just before an election, not a peep about it the day after the election ends. They're always looking for distractions that, by the way, many of the things they choose for these distractions are actually unpopular as well, mm -hmm. like book bans. Most Americans don't want some angry parent down the street deciding what should be in their school's library. That's not popular. Any poll will tell you that. But they look for issues, knowing that they are in the minority, that will stoke their folks to show up and vote. Mm -hmm. It's a, as, as uh, Anant Shankar Azorio says, engage and enrage their base. Mm -hmm. And so even though most people are like, well, what is this? We don't even know that this is an issue in our school. They're, I don't know anything about what they're They need their voters to be so angry especially if Trump isn't their candidate, because that's the only guy they've had who convinces voters to show up of late. They need to come up with things that may not persuade people in the middle, but that make it so their people show up. While they're suppressing our vote to keep our voters from showing up, they need their, their largely under 50% electorate to show up. And so oftentimes that's what those issues are for. But again, oftentimes those issues actually are not even popular. But that's not really their goal. Their goal is what can we use to get certain people so fired up, they show up for an election they might not otherwise show up in. Again, that was the caravan in 2018. You saw it in Missouri, and it was painful to watch. But I knew when I saw Claire McCaskill's poll, poll uh, the election night, I knew she was in trouble. It was pretty obvious. Her, her uh, lead was much, her numbers were worse than the polling had showed. Mm -hmm. Same thing in Ohio. Same thing in Indiana. Where, where another um, uh, another Democratic senator lost, the caravan worked mm -hmm. in Missouri. People don't people don't think about this. People, sh no one was showing up in that eighteen election for Republicans. They knew that they needed something to stoke turnout in rural Missouri, rural Indiana, rural Ohio, and so our polling, our governor candidate was ahead by a couple points, but they did get a very high rural turnout, far higher than expected, just like they did in Missouri. And a lot of that, if you go back, that was what the caravan was about. How can we enrage our voters to show up in election year that we're probably going to lose in? And they held on to seats and won seats in states where that caravan. I mean, Ron DeSantis was behind late in Florida. The, the, the turnout popped for them in rural Florida, just like it did in rural Ohio, rural Missouri, more than anticipated. And that was a result of their enraged, their base strategy. And so I think when you see those issues pop up, a lot of that, if it's not about money, it's about trying to stoke their turnout 
knowing that if it's a if it's a broader battle over health care or something else, they're not going to get their turnout up and they're probably going to lose. I know it's a long answer, but I think that's it. But what's interesting, though, is, again, many of these they lost the 18 election. Remember, they won in some of these places because that was not a, the, 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 the caravan push was not a good persuasion argument mm-hmm. in the suburbs that they were losing. It was a turnout argument for the rural part. So Nancy Pelosi became, became speaker because all across the country in suburbs, we won. Mm-hmm. But they did hang on to some seats in rural parts of this country because they engaged in this late sort of scare tactic and rage type of uh, activity. So that's really what explains they know they're in the minority. They have to keep having straight up referenda on their issues from happening. So you do that by gerrymandering. So there aren't fair districts. You do that by suppressing the vote of the other side as much as you can. And you do that by popping your own turnout as much as you can to overcome the fact that if everyone voted the same amount, you'd actually lose because you're the minority. Everything is driven by the fact that they know full well that they are the minority in on most issues right now in this country. So I just have two more questions, but you alluded to this several times. You talk about suppressing the vote. We're seeing it in Missouri. They're trying to get rid of, you know, initiative petition process. They're trying to, you know, raise the threshold to to get something through. But they also, uh, last um, election cycle, they harmed people like me who were running um, because they made it to where students who were out of state could not use their in-state college ID to vote. In my district, the largest amount of people are on campus at Northwest Missouri University, or uh, anyway, so they're at Northwest. 35% of the kids at Northwest are from out of state. They could not vote for me. Not that all of them would have voted for me, but that's 2,800 kids. I mean, that's a huge number for this district um, that that were kept out of voting. Can you tell us, um, like, are you seeing that everywhere what's happening in ohio they're not popular they have to suppress the vote how are they doing it yeah i mean they they have never gotten over barack obama's victories in 08 and 12. in ohio if it weren't for young voters and college voters including those from out of state who go to here for school he probably wouldn't have won obama's final one of his final visits in the 2012 election was he went to university after university down i-71 in ohio all the way down firing up students. Ever since, they've done everything they can to make it harder for college students to vote. It especially bothers them. And they'll say it. Sometimes they'll confess. It's very hard in the law to to get them to to be dumb enough to intentionally and, and, and express an intention to violate the Constitution. But if you look closely, they'll do it when it comes to college kids. They literally say these people aren't part of a community. They shouldn't get to vote. That's actually unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. That's intent right there. They say that in Ohio. It bothers them so much that kids who grew up somewhere else are going to school here, although we should actually welcome them here. We need to grow and stop shrinking. I'm sure Missouri feels the same way. Mm-hmm. But it bothers them so much. They've done everything they can for years to try and keep those kids from other states from voting in our states. It drives them nuts. So they have tried one thing into the next. And my worry is, and I'm going to do a whiteboard after we get off here, that the voter ID scam that they're coming up with of not allowing student IDs to count is their best tactic so far to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of a sudden, these these young people think, well, if I it could could I get my and this happened already in Ohio. 
could this screw up some of the financial package I have if I somehow use this ID or get that ID? So I'm just not going to bother. And you know what? I went to school in Connecticut. I didn't want to get a Connecticut driver's license. Mm -hmm. I would never even wait in line for that. They know that. So they're really doing what they can. And right now in Ohio, this week, today, in fact, the new voter ID rules in Ohio kick in that are doing the very same thing you just described in Missouri. And so there's a lot. To, so I'm about to finish a book that I'd, I'd love to talk about in, in May when it comes out. It's all about what we all have to do about all this stuff. And my number one thing here, and this is going to sound like I'm on my high horse, but I believe it. If you are accepting the tuition of a student to get educated at your institution, you should feel an obligation as part of your core mission as a college, university, to fight for that student's voting rights. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, I actually worry about your institution. And it shouldn't be up to the student activists. They're busy. If there's some good student activists, great. But you know from trying to organize students in college, they're moving on. They're applying for jobs. They're not. You need deeper institutional commitments to go to bat for college students. And so going forward, I want to see whether it's schools in Missouri or Ohio State, University of Cincinnati, the deans of these schools, the faculty, the advisors, they should be leading the charge to make sure that when kids register for classes, they are, it is explained to them how to get the ID they need to vote for with in Missouri and Ohio. It shouldn't be just left to students to do it because, again, they're going to be gone. These schools should take ownership. And if they say no, this is going to sound harsh. What the hell are you doing? Right. If you can't feel ownership over the people you're educating and you're part of the broader, nothing is more sort of important as we build towards a healthy democracy than high schools and colleges. It's part of the process of full citizenship. And so I think every school, and this is what I hope to do in Ohio, I hope you guys can do in Missouri, I think we need to challenge all these places. If they're not doing it, they need to lead the conversation. They need to speak out against their legislatures and say, you will not suppress the votes of our students. Missouri and Ohio are going through the same problem that we are we're losing the brain drain. Our young people, especially from rural parts of the states, are leaving. I can't think of anything dumber in the competition for the future than saying to kids who you managed to convince to live in your state for college, we don't want you here. We don't want you voting here. Long term, what you want in Missouri and Ohio is to say, without maybe announcing it too loudly, my God, we got four years to convince this young person to stay here after they graduate. And I can't imagine a better way to convince people to stay here than say, well, of course we want you voting here. We want you feeling a stake in our community. So you registering and voting here is a massive part of that. So long-term, it's like these states are killing themselves by, by basically publicly making these students seem like strangers to their communities. And I think that for all those reasons, it, it, the, the effect of what you described is exactly what the intention is. And we should be doing everything we can challenging uh, city halls. I mean, every everyone who goes to the University of Cincinnati, the mayor of Cincinnati should have in his mind, I want that person staying in Cincinnati after they graduate mm -hmm. in Ohio State, Columbus. We should be challenging everybody who isn't one of these gerrymandered legislators to do everything they can to get the, the required IDs in the hands of these students so they can vote here 
So now, not only are they voting, but they start to become, they feel like they're part of these communities that we desperately need them to feel like they're part of. So they don't leave here and go somewhere else where they're treated more fairly or more like they're welcomed. So I, I it's, a, but it's, yes, it's a very pernicious form. They've been trying to do this for years. And the ID rules, I worry, because I think back to my own time, I wasn't going to go get a Connecticut driver's license as a college. I just wasn't. They know that. And, and so they're trying to figure out how can we keep them from being being here. And every university, I think, has a role to play to help fight this. Agreed. If we could keep these kids that we have in Maryville, I mean, we could we could expand. But all our district does is shrink and shrink and shrink and shrink. In fact, we yeah. had to when redistricting happened, we had to drop a tiny little county and pick up a larger county because we just can't keep our population here. But the last thing uh, that I wanted to talk about, and I wanted you to talk about is this can feel so oppressive. This can feel like you're living in a straitjacket in these states and people all the time when I speak to them, they're like, I hate it here. I'm ready to give up. I just want to move. I can't stand what's going on. And I think that we have to give folks hope. How can we give them hope, David? And also, what can they do? What's some sort of action that they can take to do something about what's happening in our states? Yeah, and this is what this next book's about. Because a lot, so I have this book called Laboratories Autocracy. It's pretty dark about all the problems. At the very end, it goes through everything we have to do. And I, a lot of people say to me, I had to skip to the end. I was so upset by what you're describing. And so my next book is skipping to the end. It's about what everyone can do. This is only going to change if everyone does more. I, I, I know a lot of the leaders in Washington, they're going to do what they can, not as much as I'd like. But that, waiting around for them, we're not going to do it. And so I try in this new book, like I do in the end of this book, to go through there's so much everyone can do. As I said, if, if you're a student on a campus, don't just start a process, although you should, to get everyone to know what the, the new ID rules are. Go talk to the school's administrator, the dean, and say, we want this school to be committed, that every single person who walks on this campus in the fall understands the minute they get there how they can vote here and how they can get an ID. And it should be part of just like registering for classes. Um, so much of the attack on democracy is about trying to, again, they're the minority, we're the majority. They're trying to reduce our numbers. They're trying to get people disengaged. So, so much of what people can do every day in your walk of life, in the footprint of influence you have, how can you better engage people who have been kicked out of democracy and get them back on the rolls, registering, getting IDs, et cetera, every city in particular, but every community will have people who are, who have not been voting, who have been purged in some places, who have been suppressed, or they may just have given up that nothing matters. All of us can play a role in all sorts of ways. You know, again, if, if you run a small business, if you're if you're a student, if um, if uh, you know, if if you if there's a restaurant you go to every week and you know the owner, ask them, hey, do you register the people who come to this restaurant? You tell them about early vote. Have you told them about the new ID rule? You could. A lot of your customers maybe would like to hear that. Maybe they'll come back more if they feel like you're going to bat for their role in this democracy. You know, the NFL is running ads right now about how to register. Good for them. Um, everyone could be doing that. And so I think one key thing, and, and if here, here's the reason I say this, um, and this is sobering, but I say it to challenge people. The attack on democracy is of immense scale. It's the Koch brothers. It's sectors of state full time with tax dollars trying to attack the majority, trying to lower their engagement. Our scale too often 
is part-time. They put in Koch Brothers billions. We run split the pots, right? And have auctions trying to raise a hundred bucks. We have to figure out how to scale it up. And there are many ways to do that that we just aren't thinking about. And that's why I say, you know, every mayor in Missouri, everyone, and you've got some big cities that could do this. Every mayor should use every part of their city hall footprint, the rec centers, the health clinics, the libraries, public housing, every one of those places should be a place to go, uh, universities, colleges, high schools. Should anyone who walks in the doors of that city hall before they leave, that health clinic, that rec center, should know how to register, how to get that ID. Every city mayor should feel an obligation, just like the university administrators. Their voters are being attacked purposely and intentionally by that state house to reduce their numbers. And tax dollars have been used to do it. That mayor should have no hesitation. In fact, should feel almost their competitive juices flowing. I'm getting my voters back on the rolls. Mm -hmm. And so I'm, and it's totally, this is nonpartisan activity. They should be using every element of their city hall footprint to inform and help voters find their path back into democracy. And I hate to say this, and it's not a criticism. I was a city council member. I never did this. I didn't think it was part of my job. Now I wish I could, if I were back there, I'd be going like crazy. If I were handing out grants to nonprofits now, if I were on city council now, I would literally say, you as a nonprofit serving the poor people of Cincinnati need to include in your mission, registering them, lifting them in democracy. That's part of your mission. And that's part of why we support you. What are you doing to do that? We need to have sort of, a, we just need to scale up in every way, re-engage people in democracy to compete with a scale of attacking democracy that is immense, full-time, nonstop. And too often, I know you agree with this, too often, we only do our pro-democracy work a few months at the end of two-year campaigns. <laughs> and Steve Bannon does it every day. Yep. Every He was recruiting precinct executives and poll workers within months of the failure of January 6th. He doesn't stop. The Koch brothers don't stop. Our horrible secretaries of state don't, don't stop. But we too often think that democracy work is only about a few campaigns, federal for the most part, swing state for the most part, while they're churning away, crushing us every day, we have to find it within ourselves. And that's why I'd say to any listener, look at your own footprint. Where, where do you have any influence at all? If you're a student, if you, if you volunteer or on the board of a nonprofit, or you know the mayor of St. Louis, whatever it is, or, or the Kansas City, we, we had a little rivalry for a couple of days. Unfortunately, we lost it between <laughs> what looked like a very impressive mayor of Kansas City and our mayor of Cincinnati. Yes. Well, let's have that rivalry be about who can register the most most voters. That's a great rather idea. Getting, I'm gonna. I'm rather than that idea. Arguments with, yeah, yeah. We got Travis Kelsey talking trash about a city <laughs> where he went to school. For goodness sakes, let's talk trash about which city registered more voters. Yeah. And handed and got more people to get voter IDs. Like it. I love sports. I'm a massive Bengals fan. Like, but I'm actually bothered when I think about it. We're competing on some of the great. Let's compete about Chiefs Bengals and we'll have a nice comeback next year, by the way. But <laughs> why are we competing with even more ferocity about who registered the most voters that were purged from our respective cities? Yeah, I, I don't get it. No, so I, I think that yeah. there's so much. And so if you know the mayor of Kansas City, ask yeah. him, hey, can you do that, too? Or the uh, or, or a live or a school board member. I, I reached out to a school board member I know the other day and mentioned this voter ID thing. 18 and 19 year olds do not have driver's licenses. Mm -hmm. They know that they're going to be suppressed. 
So I, I reached out to a council, a school, a, a school board member I know and said, hey, could you help us get every high school senior to know about this? He goes, my goal is that every 18 year old in our high school system knows how to go to voter ID. Thank you. Let's get to work. I just literally asked a guy who I know who's on the school board. Any one of your listeners can do that with people they know or with organizations they're involved with. Well, yeah. Thank you, David. That was um, so much good information. It's so good to talk to somebody who um, is in the same place, uh, fighting the same fight, just like the listeners um, right now who are listening to this that are like, oh my gosh, um, Ohio and Missouri are doing the exact same thing. And as long as we realize that we know what we're up against, we can look around and see that our Secretary of State is trying to suppress votes, that our AG is going after trans kids, um, that our representatives are trying to dismantle our schools. David, we just defunded uh, libraries. <laughs> we took all By the, the way, state funding was that a state house decision? Uh, yeah, it was state house. It's going up to Senate now. There is no... That's a third rail. Right. People, when they have levies in Cincinnati and Great Hamilton County, even though it's conservative parts of this county s- support their library levy. Yeah. So one thing I would really focus on, and, and you know this as a candidate, but anyone who, and we need to run, by the way, one other part of it, what do we do? We have to run in every district. Yes. And when you tell me they're defunding libraries, that's why you run in every district. Right. Because there are a few things less popular than cutting libraries. That is a horrible political decision. And I always point to uh, um, Kansas. One, if you heard me earlier today, and I know we're going over our time. I hope that's okay. No, it's okay. If you heard me earlier today in our conversation. I mentioned that they don't care about public outcomes falling. But in their system where they're always giving private goods, I'm sorry, public goods to the private, they are generating public outcomes that actually are indefensible Mm -hmm. and very unpopular. And we too often don't focus on what those are. And so when you tell me libraries, I'm like, well, there's a campaign right there. Right. Or, you know, your, your commentary on public schools is so strong. I I went to a, I went to my son's school's basketball tournament um, a month ago. And I watched as a small rural community, showed up in droves Mm -hmm. to cheer on their high school team. And I'm thinking, what if they knew that their state rep was cutting the funds for the school that they are so passionate about? Right. We don't tell them that. We talk about policy, but we don't say, you know, the Braves or the whoever, they're cutting your team. You have to pay more for sports because they took the money and gave it away. If we figured out how to point in this, Laura Kelly, the mayor, the governor of Kansas, she did this. She's a Democrat. She won because of this. She figured out how to show people they're crushing your schools, mm-hmm. your local school. In some cases, only four days a week. And I know that's happening in Missouri. Yep. So when you mention libraries, one key advice is don't say everything I'm saying now and don't say everything I say in my book. Make it simple get to the public outcomes that their corruption are generating. The ones that would offend most Missourians sitting around their dining room table, like the fact that their local school that they're proud of, that their kids go to, is now failing, and just stick it right in their face. And go knock on every door of that district. And don't bring up all the complicated stuff. Say, so-and-so cost our, whatever the name of the school is these days, like, 
our local district X amount and you're paying more because of it. The same thing Gretchen Whitmer did when she told everyone, fix the damn roads. I had to pay $500 to fix my windshield. You had to do the same thing. Fix the damn roads. The the library cuts in a world of fair districts, suicidal politics. Right. And so, so my challenge though is, even in a world of rigged districts, go knock on 20,000 doors and make sure that everyone in that district knows so-and-so cut our libraries because that's a very unpopular thing to do. Exactly. And that's one other way. So we got to run everywhere and you got to bring up the the, the public failures that aren't partisan, that most people in a community like yours and mine are pissed off about if they know about them and if we've explained it the right way. Exactly. Well, David, I really appreciate you. I thank you for your time. Um, and I'm so excited about your new book. Um, the The one that you wrote, Laboratories of Autocracy, was absolutely amazing. And I can't recommend it enough. Um, and that last part, you're right. You're like, what do I do? What do I do? <laughs> you know, it's hard. It's hard to. I had someone tell me not very long ago, I used to watch your TikToks, but I can't watch them anymore because they depressed me. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm so sorry. So yeah, it is time to for us to yes, all of this bullshit is happening. But here is what we can do and you know, give that to folks. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I'll just say I, when people tell me I skip to the end to get to the solutions, I was so <laughs> upset. I, I have one, I respect it. We all want to get the solutions. But two, when you're done, go back and read it all. Yes. Until we confront what they are doing and how we will never overcome it. You're exactly and I right. worry that so much of the, the sense that too many have, un, uh, understandably, that we're losing this battle. It's because we don't see their battle clearly enough. Mm-hmm. And I wrote this first book, and the beginning of the second book is to make sure everyone sees right. what their battle is. Their battle is what we saw in Tennessee yesterday. Mm-hmm. Their battle will unfortunately likely be figuring out how to not accept the results of that Wisconsin election. <sighs> That's what they're going to do. Their battle is ruthless and it's against democracy because they know they're minority and they started in states until everyone confronts the ugliness of their battle. I don't think we're prepared to take it on. And And the reason why rural Missouri and most of Missouri, like a lot of Ohio, feels so left out of the Democratic battle is because Democrats, for the most part, are not seeing the other side's battle. And so we're not fighting it the way we should be. And that's leaving a whole lot of America just basically amid a losing battle that you, that you feel your listeners feel and I too often feel as I go around Ohio. Exactly. Thank you so much, David. Thanks. I hope that we can get together and talk soon, especially when that new book comes yeah, out. Yeah, I would love to. Good, Thank good you. deal. Thanks for all you're doing. Keep Thank it up. Thank you. Bye. Okay, see ya. Okay, so that was the longest interview I've ever done, but I could have interviewed David for hours. He's seeing the exact same things uh, that we're seeing in Missouri and Iowa and Florida and Texas. These out-of-touch GOP supermajorities ruining our states, right? Coming after all of us, coming after our rights. Um, and if I were you, I would grab Laboratories of Autocracy. It's a great book. I think it's like $3.99 right now on Amazon um, for the Kindle version. If you care, if you care about protecting democracy, then you have to know what's happening at the state level. 
And if you want to know what's happening at the state level, you need to pay attention to your local politics. Everyone wants your head turned toward D.C., especially GOP supermajorities, because they don't want you seeing what they're doing to your state. They want you, you know, looking somewhere else. But don't. Refuse. Stay connected and stay paying attention to those local issues because book bans, abortion bans, you know, bans that are going after trans kids playing sports, all of these things happen at the state level. Your school is funded at the state level. Your roads are funded at the state level. Pay attention, friends. Thank you for listening, and I can't wait to talk to you next week. Dirt Road Democrat is brought to you by the Heartland Pod, a mid-map media production. Producers are Adam Summer, Rachel Parker, and Sean Dillon. Theme music by Adam Summer. Host, Jessica Piper. Learn more at heartlandpod.com. Thank you.